Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, October 19th. None of that feels real. It doesn't feel like Tuesday. It doesn't feel like October. It's beautiful outside. And it doesn't feel like the 19th. But Halloween's 12 days away. I assure you of that. Uh, Dr. Monica Gandhi, our guest. Wow, we've been looking for her for some amount of time. Able to track her down. She makes her Canadian radio debut. Constantly in demand by television and radio. And she chose us to debut in our country. We're pretty honored. Straight talk about COVID. And I began this particular podcast, which features many other great things, by the way, uh, by asking her, we don't talk about natural immunity, acquired immunity, infected immunity, whatever you want to call it, people who've had COVID, who then obviously need to get vaccinated, should get vaccinated, have to get vaccinated. What happens then? And why don't we talk about it? That's where we started our chat. Yeah, I think there's this idea that if it's discussed too much, that people may not still consider vaccination. And I I sort of used to use these phrases when we said stay at home. I think it you can you have subtle conversations with people and you can have nuanced discussions with people and people will understand what you mean. And so um, I think it's important to say that it's protective. It depends likely on how severe your initial infection was. And there's heterogeneity to that protection, which is why we recommend at least one dose after you've been infected. But it is not to not discuss it at all. Just, I think, reduces public health trust. It's something where I think people, I've had doctors explain to me that it's it's not that different than the reaction to the vaccine. Some people have a really tough time with it. Some people feel like they're hungover for a day and a half, depending on the vaccine you get and whether it's first or second dose. And some people, they don't feel a thing. And and th- those doctors have said to me, why would COVID be any different? Is that, do you have a thesis about that as well? Yes. So I completely agree that there are heterogeneous responses to natural infection. You can actually feel okay, that's asymptomatic, and you can feel really sick, obviously. Um, And then there's heterogeneous responses to vaccination. And um, you can have a great response or in the case if you give the vaccines too close together, for example, which Canada did not do. Canada had the right approach with spacing their doses. But if you give the vaccines too close together, you may not have as good of a response to spacing them apart. And so vaccines and natural infection are both heterogeneous. It depends on the host. It depends on the vaccine. It depends on how you give it. I mean, obviously, we don't want anyone to get sick. But if someone has gotten sick, if they have been infected, then we need to acknowledge that they likely got some immunity from that. Dr. Monica Gandhi is our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, all the way from San Francisco. As we said, and I, I think, I, as I said to you off air, um, such a big fan of your of your practicality. We are just, you know, waging this battle and trying to trying to come up the middle and have, to me, Dr. Gandhi, practicality in, in what we do going forward, but also empathy. And it's really hard to balance sometimes. Some I'm sure, like a lot of people, some mornings we wake up and we're more empathetic than practical, and other mornings we wake up and we're like, no, this should just be about practicality. Forget feelings. We've got to get back on track here. I, I, we're, we've been balancing this, it feels like, for months with one in one yeah. hand and the other in the other. Yes, I think that's a really fair way to put it. I mean, I think when you can see an end in sight, things are getting better and it's absolutely everything is getting better. It's not going to be the end that we thought it would be. It's going to fizzle out. Um, It's not going to be this one day that we wake up and it's gone. It's likely to be still what's called endemic where it will still be with us, but completely manageable. And that's an okay place to be. 
Dr. Monica Gandhi, our guest. So I, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because around January, February, just as we're getting vaccines rolled out in the United States was a little earlier, but we're getting them into long-term care homes where we're, the idea was protect the most vulnerable. Let's get, let's get shots into arms as quickly as, I, as we can to those who could be the most damaged or the most vulnerable or susceptible to a bad outcome. But the concept of COVID zero was brought up and I'd interview guests talking about it. Um, and you know, you, you'd wonder about it and then spring comes, we're all getting more vaccinated. Delta hits some of the goalposts moved. And I still have people saying, well, you should still be talking about COVID zero. I don't know how responsible it is, let alone what a, what a letdown the idea is to, to end up giving everything back again and giving it another go. Um, what was your thought on it from the beginning in January, February, were you looking at it? as an endemic virus or did that really change in the spring with, with how transmissible Delta was? Um, I do think that the Delta and being so transmissible really took any fantasies of COVID zero completely away, mm-hmm. but I actually never thought we'd get to COVID zero. And why? Because it actually doesn't have the characteristics of what we call an eradicable pathogen. Those four characteristics are there should be no animals that have it. Okay, that would be mm-hmm. like smallpox. Second is that it should look exactly like only itself and nothing it's nothing else it can be. That's like smallpox. This looks like a bunch of other respiratory viruses. Third, short infectious period. Well, no, actually, you. this has a long infectious period. You're pre-symptomatic and you don't even know you can give it to someone. And then fourth, that it really should have either natural immunity for life or a highly effective vaccine and you're done. This is a good vaccine. We likely are immune for a long time, but it's not like smallpox. And there's just so many reasons that we can't completely eradicate it. And when you just said that phrase, COVID zero could be irresponsible, I agree that there's a concept that if you just pay attention to COVID, that that's all, and we can get it down to zero, that's what we should be doing. The problem is so many other things are falling by the wayside, HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, Mm -hmm. other public health needs. What we need to do is get it down to what's called control. And that would be like measles. That would be like pertussis. These are infections that you don't actually think of very much in the general public. I do mm-hmm. as an infectious disease doctor, but you don't think about it very much because it's manageable. We've managed to get it down to low levels. There'll be outbreaks here and there. We can treat it. We can fix it. We can give vaccines. We can do ring vaccination and we control it. It just becomes a long-term controllable disease that doesn't affect our lives like this. Dr. Monica Gandhi, kind of to join us in infectious diseases, uh, an HIV doctor at University of California, San Francisco on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, yeah, I, I the idea, I've said this to people, if, if this pandemic had happened in 1986, 35 years ago, pre-internet, we're all probably better off. Is that is that the most obvious statement on the planet? Or do you look and say, no, nah, the internet has brought some, right, brought some efficiency together, brought some understanding together. I can find smart people like you to, to listen to and, and follow a path. Or do we look and say, it, it, it polarized us so much. It, it's, it, we were getting torn apart as it was politically. Now we get a medical scientific crisis on our hands globally. And, and we, we prove through our, our internet usage anyway that it splits us even further. I agree with the latter, actually, that I think that when I think about HIV, which was came out in, I mean, mainly it first got described in 1981. So it's what the scenario that you just said. It wasn't like this. It wasn't like that we had such polarization or that 
people could post things and have a lot of people follow them that are inaccurate, that are truly inaccurate. And this is what's happening right now. And we are being torn apart in countries like ours. And then there are places where people are sort of more trustful of their public health officials and they're not being torn apart. And so, yeah, this is, this has been, we need to write books about what the internet did to a pandemic, but um, it's, 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 it's not the same as an HIV where people came together much better. It's one thing about, and I think debating restrictions, Dr. Gandhi, was one thing. It was one thing to say, well, this may work, this may not. We, we've had all these debates, right? Big outdoor crowds or storefronts or, or you know, eating on a patio. We've all had these debates about, about how we're going to risk mitigate. The one thing that I didn't see coming, and maybe I should have, was vaccinations. If I would told you 18 months ago, there's going to be fierce debate, unfortunately, about the efficacy of vaccines and and just the, the you know the downright take them or not take them would you have said yeah I'm, I'm worried that's my biggest nightmare about this is that some people will do their own research quote unquote and decide not to take it could you have seen that coming I could not have seen this coming actually because vaccines when I first when we first got it was December I re- really remember this day it was November mm-hmm. 9th when we got the first press release of the first effective vaccine, November 16th, the second press release of the second uh, effective vaccine. People, we were thrilled. It was incredible. Like, we were going to get through this. This is the way to get through it. And I just didn't have any doubt that it wouldn't be embraced and thought of as the way through the pandemic. It's always a solution is to get to immunity through a pandemic. And then we got our first ones in December and then January, and then they started rolling out and everyone was excited and lining up in mass vaccination sites. And I didn't think that we, especially in the U.S., starting April 19th, everyone could get them. It was completely available. I thought, I just, I didn't think we'd slow and stall like this where we are now 45th in the world in terms of giving out vaccines because we don't have the uptake. And it is, it's misinformation. These are safe and they're the only way to get through the pandemic. And so, um, yeah, I, it's really profoundly disappointing and sad. And I also think that people are, who, are, who are saying that they're dangerous, they look very credible because they, they um, you know, they have doctors after their names and they have a lot of followers and they look credible. But it doesn't make sense because these are working really well. I think the one thing we really have found out, and and we could say this about anything, um, you know, the, there's the just just having the MD behind your name, as you know, is not a level playing field, and and being a lawyer, and not all lawyers are created equal, not all, you know, construction workers are cre- like we see this in the athletic field. Well, why can't somebody do what LeBron James can on the basketball floor? Because they're not LeBron James. Like like there's lots of inequalities in in you know career oriented, uh, you know, distinctions. And why would doctors and infectious diseases uh, specialists be any different? And you're right that the Internet gives platforms and so does social media and all of this gives platforms for this. Mm. And actually, I feel really sad because I think that people truly um, believe that they're unsafe. I mean, meaning they they are confused. It's very confusing to hear someone who looks credible and has and 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 speaking to the camera um, <laughs> and saying they're dangerous, but they're not. Um, and they're they're really not. We've given out 6.6 billion doses of this vaccine across the planet. This is the largest mass vaccination program in history. They are safe and they are working. 
I know there's parents that, that are struggling. We're, we're 12 plus here, uh, like the United States is. I know in the UK, it's a lot more controversial because they haven't vaccinated uh, 12 to 17. Uh, and that's had some ripple effects. Some have been positive, some have not been. Um, but uh, I wonder if you think it's going to be a bridge that is going to be even more div- divisive with 5 to 11s. There may be parents, and they may be valid um, based on some of the studies and the real world data to say, why what my six year old is very healthy. She's a very healthy girl, athletic girl, no comorbidities, just in great. Why would I vaccinate her? And that's a tough one, isn't it? You And you want to provide confidence and create confidence for those that are around that six-year-old. But I understand it too. I'm, you know, I understood the vaccine mandates in many, um, you know, settings for adults. I do. I have a tough time convincing a parent of a six or seven-year-old that you're going to have to do this or your kid misses out. It's It's really, really difficult. Yeah, that one, I agree, is more difficult. And this is where our information has to be stellar and um, explained better, which is that parent is absolutely right. That child is very low risk for COVID. We can't deny that children are much less at risk for COVID. Um, They're actually much less at risk for many infectious diseases, though, for which we vaccinate children. Um, They are not low risk for measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis. Those are childhood diseases. But uh, pneumococcus, H influenza, mufflis influenza, we vaccinate not because they're higher risk, but because number one, they grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can be get they can get higher risk and it's good to have immunity early on. Second is that it reduces transmission everywhere. It helps their adults and their grandparents around them. And I know that sounds, well, why should I vaccinate to protect others? But the more we're all immune to something, the disease gets down to a very, very low level, and we all live better, meaning we all get to get past this. And so school is not normal, Um, and it'd be great to have completely normal school, no testing, all masking. This is not normal, and all of this would go away if we could get to high levels of immunity. And then third is we have to convince uh, parents that they're safe. And there are rare side effects of the mRNA vaccines, which is myocarditis. And I've actually been watching Canada again very closely because I think it's, I think they did a lot right. And one thing they did was, you all did, was you spaced out your doses. And there was data from Alberta um, just last week that showed that your rate of myocarditis with that second dose, which is where we're seeing it more in Israel and the U.S., where we did a three-week spacing between Pfizer doses. In Alberta, the rate of myocarditis was much less than what was observed in Israel um, with a three-week dosing. So I think the longer spacing not only increases effectiveness, which you uh, there was presented data not only in Cell last week, a really major science magazine, but CNBC, uh, Europe, Canada broadcasting presented mm-hmm. data that's much more effective to, to have um, spaced out your doses to seven, seven to eight weeks than three weeks, but also likely they're more safe that way. And then the final thing is that the child vaccine is much lower of a dose. 5 to 11 is going to be 10 micrograms as opposed to 30 micrograms. This is for the Pfizer formulation uh, that we give for adults. And that's that's the right thing to do is dose adjust, make sure that we give the right dose, lower dose for children so there's very few side effects. Because there's no doubt it has to be very safe 
if you're giving it essentially to protect the world. Yeah, we went. I mean, we went to the wall uh, to help people older than us, elderly people, frail people. We did everything. We did everything that we were asked, and we're not even being asked to do a fraction of that for our young kids now. And uh, and and we should, you know, th- those should. years are so precious. We should we shouldn't be balking at it. We shouldn't be balking at it I one bit. Agree. I completely agree. We have to think about the young now and trying to get their lives back to normal. You're a rock star. Thank you for making time for us here in Toronto. I'm not sure if this was your Canadian radio debut, but I could make it fake news and make it so. If that's and you were so praiseful, it was. It okay. was. Well, I I hope you don't get besieged with 20 other interviews from uh, you out. know the Yukon and uh, Saskatchewan and all over the place. But uh, I know your time's valuable and precious, um, and I can't thank you enough for coming on with us. And it's valuable. It really is for our listeners in Toronto to hear from your perspective. Thank you. Very pleased to have our next guest on. Um, he's been a phenomenal follow uh, for COVID info. And I've got so many friends in the UK. It's a second home. My, the best man for my wedding lives in Greenwich in Blackheath. So um, I can't wait to go there again. The plan is to go in May. The plan was to go, obviously, this past summer for the Euros. I missed a little bit uh, missing the Euros. That's for sure. John Byrne Murdoch is uh, a writer for the Financial Times and does a lot of phenomenal COVID data. And we're lucky enough to get him here in Toronto. John, thank you very much for making the time for me. I appreciate it. Morning, Greg. It's great to have you. Uh, we, you know, I, I noticed a a couple different threads that you've been working on. One I find fascinating is the idea of miscounting populations if you could lay out for our listeners that that sometimes in terms of keeping data it's a struggle for cities you know provinces here states in the u.s and countries to have a real true grasp of of what their population is sometimes can you lay some of of your your theories out there yeah sure so this is this is a really interesting one because i think all of us have got used to reading these stats whether it's the percentage of people who've been vaccinated or how well the vaccines are working and assuming that um you know all, all the data there all the numbers there are exactly exactly as they appear but the interesting thing is there's a lot of examples now of whether it's individual countries or states counties that kind of thing where um we're starting to see things like more than 100 percent of people in a certain age group having been vaccinated and obviously that's not possible and what's usually happening there is countries that don't do frequent censuses as in you know maybe they only do a census every 10 years which is true of most countries in any given year um between those censuses it's actually quite difficult to know exactly how many people there are in the country so they have to estimate and so when you see vaccine uptake go above 100 percent, it's essentially telling us the these countries don't actually um know exactly how many people they've got and they they have more than they think and the mm-hmm. the tricky thing of course that that produces is if you think well 100 percent of our over 60s for example have been vaccinated then you think okay job done we don't need to be um focusing on outreach anymore to find more people but it's almost certainly not 100 percent. and because of these uncertainties in population it could even be thousands tens of thousands of people who haven't yet had their vaccine but you think they have and then there's a particularly um thorny one in parts of the us where we get this concept of vaccine tourism and that's especially acute in Florida, where what the data show is that in some Florida zip codes, it's not just that the percentage of people who've been vaccinated goes above 100%. In some cases, it's above 200%, or in one particular case, it's above 2,000%. And what's obviously happened there is Florida is recording um, vaccines based on where they happen, not based on where the, that person usually lives. So you get a lot of um, tourists, particularly older people, mm-hmm. who visit Florida in the winter when things 
into cold, they're back home. Um, they've got their vaccine there. They've then headed back home. And so when we thought that Florida had about 90% of its over 65s vaccinated, the real figure was probably around 80%. And that 10 percentage point difference can make a huge impact as we saw when Delta hit Florida. Well, here, here's a number for you and for our listeners that it probably won't surprise you, uh, but 3.6 million Canadians uh, visited. We only have 36 million. That's 10% of Canadians officially visited Florida in the year 2019. So you can bet some of them. And I know some of them went down uh, in 2020, got a vaccine down there and were happy to you know, fly back the quarantine. They did what they were supposed to do. But that's a chunk of people. That's a huge chunk of people that Florida would be counting as vaccinated, but they're Canadians. And then we have them undercounted for vaccine for getting back that first shot up here. Exactly. And, you know, I, the, the interesting thing is it probably different countries probably do different things. Here. So it may even be that um, those people would appear in the Canadian statistics. But certainly the fact that they do appear in the Florida um, data is is a problem. And, and you know, we saw in July and August when when the Delta wave started taking off in Florida, there was a lot of confusion. A lot of people saying, well, why? Why does why do things seem to be going badly there when such a high percentage of their vulnerable people have been vaccinated? And now it appears that the true percentage was actually much lower because of exactly that that vaccine tourism issue. I've said for a while, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be corrected, that the cases just don't mean the same thing post-vaccination. I, I, you know, I'm not calling it lazy to lead with cases. They, they are an indicator, that's for sure. But it felt like they were the indicator a year ago at this time pre-vaccination. How do you view you know, widespread case numbers? When you look at UK case numbers, they aren't exactly always leading to you know, bad outcomes and hospitalizations, quite obviously, because we're having fully vaccinated, asymptomatic people have to test for certain things um, at, at certain times uh, during their week or month. How do you view what the actual case number means compared to 12 months ago? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that the key thing as ever here is that it's, it's a bit of balance. So it's not about saying our cases just don't matter anymore, because mm-hmm. even in the UK, we've seen that when you've got a lot of cases focused among young school age children, for example, sure, the risk the risk to the the risk of hospitalization or death for those school aged children from COVID is, remains very very low. But what we have seen in the UK is those those cases then spread into people's parents or you know teachers at school and older generations. So cases even among vaccinated or younger people can still matter in that sense in the sense that they they put um, the more vulnerable people at risk. But I still think. Um, what we're really doing in the UK at the moment is focusing more on hospitalizations and deaths because, of course, those are the statistics that at the end of the day really matter. So, you know, if someone's losing their lives, that is that is a tragedy, whether they were vaccinated or not. And similarly, the the real um, the real issue that, that the government is trying to manage in the UK is, is pressure on the hospitals. So if if people are getting hospitalized, that's a problem. It could, it puts the whole healthcare system under pressure. So cases still matter as a as a sort of rough guide to what's going on. But the real the really key metrics are those more, those indicators of more severe outcomes. John Byrne Murdoch, uh, kind enough to join us from the UK. Phenomenal with data. Um, you know, we did a stu- We mentioned a study yesterday in the states that showed you know all these big crowds at stadiums. And I mentioned you saw them uh, in the summer for the Euros. We were back full on Premier League games, Champions League games have full stadiums again, and we didn't. Last year at this time, obviously pre-vaccine, but the stu- the study showed that even in the southern states, all these massive college football stadiums, they're not seeing upticks in cases or hospitalizations. Even as 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 many awful policies as as there have been in Florida, people at stadiums aren't getting sick. 
I, I wonder what the common perception is in the, in the UK, because I do see numbers that are worrying and concerning, but that, that, that just that can't be the people that are going to these stadiums en masse. These aren't super spreader events like we would have called them 18 months ago. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, so even so, during the Euros in, in the UK, as you mentioned, um, you know, the English team had a very good run. There was there was enormous sort of national fervor around mm. around that tournament. Um, and what we found, and, and this was true in other parts of the UK as well, it wasn't so much attendance of the matches because you know these are generally open air venues. Um, so even though even though people talk about the word crowd, that, that in terms of actual crowding and certainly being indoors. They're not actually extremely high risk events, but the problem is when you know whenever England were playing, for example, in June, July, you get, alongside each match, you've got far, far, far greater numbers of people, sometimes into the millions, gathering in pubs, in private homes, um, to to watch to watch the match with friends or family, and it's those indoor settings, especially you know when you've got a lot of jumping around and shouting and that kind of thing, um, that that's where that's where more of the risk comes from so the return of the premier league in england for example it's it's not about the there's 50 60 000 people at any given match it's if if this leads to large numbers of people congregating in sports bars to watch the games or or getting mates around with some with some beers to watch the match that's probably where the risk comes from so it's we you know we're not saying that these um these major events don't matter but they matter perhaps in ways that people might not immediately think john burn murdoch from the financial times i know i'm tight for time and your time's valuable i i i see that one of the reasons i follow you and one of the reasons that i think your your info is so valuable here and we're all trying to do this the right way is you use numerators and denominators i find it so frustrating when we just look at raw numbers you've got a pin tweet right now that documents uh, I'll read it. People worry when they hear 40% of hospitalizations are fully vaxxed, but we're talking a much lower number numerator over denominator, right? Than we were talking about six months ago, seven months ago. Like we can make any stat sound more concerning than it needs to be sometimes if, if we're not, if we're not working hard enough. Absolutely. And look at the, at the end of the day, I think the key thing is look at the, these, the, the metrics that really matter, right? So look at hospitalizations, look at deaths and look at, so first of all, obviously the direction of travel, but then arguably as important, if not more, where are we today relative to where we were when things were really, really bad? So the UK is a classic example of that at the moment because there is concern, and you know it's not unreasonable concern at the moment that we're going into winter, and um, all of these metrics in the UK are considerably higher than they are in the rest of Western Europe. But deaths from COVID in the UK right mm. now are still only ten percent. Of what they were last winter now of course that number could go up and and 10 of a large number is still a number that we would want to bring down but it's 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 just not as high and i think people should spend less time focusing on things like what percentage of people in hospital have been double vaccinated or especially when that comes to cases and more more time just looking at where are we today for these severe measures how does that compare to the past and what do we as a society think about that is that number too high is it too low or is it or is it something that we can sort of quote unquote live with uh, I loved having you on. By the way, I know my best friend that lives in Blackheath. He's envious that I'm so close to Florida. He comes over frequently. You have Greece so close. Come on. Greece is better than Florida, John. I mean, is there data that, that backs that up or is that just an opinion? You tell me. 
I mean, what I'll say is I, I, I spent time in Greece this summer. I didn't spend time in Florida. I had, I had a great time, and I, I certainly agree with that. I think, I think it's a uni- – uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I can campaign for anything on that. I don't think any – you know, you, you, you win any prize for saying Greece is better than Florida. It just feels like common knowledge. I loved having you on. Thanks very much for doing what you do, uh, and I'm happy to amplify your message over here in North America. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Have a good one. The future of work is getting debated a fair bit as Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca says, what about a four day work week? A pilot sounds like a campaign promise, but was the future of work changing? Let's bring on McGill University organizational behavior professor Jean-Nicolas Raitt uh, to join us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jean-Nicolas, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Was you, you write a lot about this? You talk a lot about this to groups uh, and uh, and online. Now, was work changing? Was the work environment changing pre-COVID? And COVID is simply going to accelerate some of the changes to how we do it in our office structure. So it's interesting. It actually was not changing. So I did my PhD dissertation twelve or fifteen years ago on remote work. And, you know, we've had the technology to do remote work for the past 30 years, but it's been constrained to 3% of the adult population for the past, for the past 30 years. Um, the reality is, you know, management was against it, you know, CEOs were against it, and so it was just never widely adopted. But the pandemic changed that, right? It forced everybody to switch to remote work. And now I think a lot of parameters uh, in the workplace are reconsidered. People are wondering what else can we change? It's tricky, isn't it, for bosses? I think, you know, I think FaceTime, uh, I don't mean the actual app, but FaceTime between bosses and employees are valuable. Employee and employee, um, you know, FaceTime is, is yeah. valuable. I, I can't get enough of it myself, but I know some people cringe at it and, and are happy or they, they didn't realize how happy they actually would be at home. And once they got a system down with minimizing the distractions, um, they seemed happier. Is that sort of the evolution of where we were spring of 2020 with people realizing not only can I do it, I like it better. I think I think it's even uh, a stronger effect than this. Uh, you know, the, the way we work, right, the 40 day work, the, the 40 hour work week, five days a week, it's been going on for 100 years. But at the time, you know, families had one person who was working and one person who was taking care of the mm-hmm. kids. It's not what's happening today. In a lot of families, both parents are working. So I think it's a lot of stress in a lot of families to have two parents working. And, you know, a lot of women, for example, take care of their elderly parents. And, you know, there's a lot of research showing that they don't report it to work. They just do it in addition to their work. So I think, you know, working from home a couple of days a week has really added a lot of flexibility to people and has reduced a lot of stress um, in a situation that was very difficult to manage. So I think I think, you know, people definitely enjoy, you know, enjoy working from home. And I think, you know, maybe the younger ones with um, no family ties enjoy have more enjoyment. But I think for a lot of people, it's very useful. It's really something that's useful to them. This is why when you ask people with all of the polls that have been done, right, like, do you want to continue working from home? You have something like 85 percent of people say yes. I mean, just ask the general population a question about something. It's really rare to see 85% of the population agreeing on something. You're, you're not wrong. Oh, my goodness. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, getting anywhere close to, you, you know, you could ask, is the sky blue in a poll? And, you know, maybe 7% might be like, I don't know. I, I, on the best of days, John Nicola Ray joining us, a McGill University organizational behavior professor. So let's let's break that down. And the reason I'm often suspicious of polls, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about them as talk topics during election time, but I do roll my eyes sometimes i think they're valuable to to give a gauge and and a roadmap as to where people are at but let's put it this way if you tell people a four-day work week will cost you some salary 
and if you tell people continuing to work from home will also cost your salary. Um, yeah. Like like if, if someone does their job like I do and they're home all day long, especially with the price of gas and I'm coming yeah. in 10 different commutes, that's going to add up yeah. by the end. And I'm going to say, you got to pay me more than that person. I'm the one coming in. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. I mean, there's definitely all of, all of these questions, right, that are going, going to be raised. Um, you know, and especially people who live further away, should, should they be paid the same? I think, you know, this is all very interesting. I think all in all, you know, um, with, with the way we're considering work, I think we should be focused less on telling people when and where to work. And we should be focused more on telling them, you know, what they need to do, what results they're supposed to achieve and giving them the resources for this. Um, and so I think, you know, especially when it comes about work location uh, or the mm-hmm. number of hours worked, for a lot of jobs, that's not relevant. You know, I know, I know managers like pay a lot of attention to it, but what do you care if somebody is, is spending eight hours a day doing nothing from the office or eight hours a day working from home? What matters is that they're, they're getting the work done. That's what matters. That's right. We often, uh, you know, we have a guy around here who says work smarter, not harder. And I'm no. not sure how smart he is or how hard he works, but I'm going to find out. I'm still investigating all that stuff. Sean <laughs> Nicola, thanks very much for the time today. It's really innovative stuff, and uh, and I appreciate your expertise. We'll do this again. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Totally. Sean Nicola Ray joining us from McGill University. Let me start here on this. We got a ton to do. There was so much that came down yesterday with Justin Trudeau's visit um, to uh, indigenous leaders out in B.C. Remember, don't travel unless it's absolutely necessary. Do not. I hope you're not thinking about traveling. Do not do that. We were told by the federal health minister, don't be traveling unless it's absolutely necessary. Unless you screwed up on September 30th and you got to make up for it, um, you know, 19 days later. If that's the case, but I hope you're not thinking of doing it. I really hope that's the case. So Doug Ford was traveling yesterday in Tecumseh, Ontario. Uh, Doug Ford's the premier of the province, just to reset who he is. And um, really, (laughs) I, I stepped in it. He stepped in it. There's no doubt about it. Um, they're all over them this morning. Who's they? The opposition leaders in unison. They've stopped actually running kind of attack ads against each other and are criticizing him for a comment he made about immigrants. I know that word is troublesome as it is for some people. Nothing stirs up a backyard barbecue or a dinner party like, hey, yeah, enough about talking about the Buffalo Bills and the weather. And, and idiot Brady on the bike riding around the neighborhood. Did anyone see that? Let's talk about immigration. That'll stop the dinner party dead. That'll get everybody at the barbecue looking at you. You're Toasting hot dogs and marshmallows are the least of anybody's worries. When I say, hey, I've got some opinions on immigrants. <laughs> You're thinking about it right now, right? So it's got its danger. It, they are things we have to talk about. There's responsible and irresponsible policies about immigration. I know we went through this in 2016 south of the border, and we looked at him and thought, wow, United States with Donald Trump coming in, that's a terrible person. What a terrible human being. And there's this policy, and he wants to build a wall, and he's got a ban against people of Muslim origin. All that's true. All that reeks of of anti-immigrant, xenophobic policy and behavior. But here's my butt here, and I'm going to hang my butt out so you can hear it. Uh, There are important conversations to have if you live in New Mexico or Texas uh, about what's happening with a flood of immigration. 
There are people you should let into the country, must let into the country, and people you do have to turn back away from your country. Immigration's an important issue. Everybody can't come and do everything they want to do. Okay? That's not how any of this works. It's not how we were set up. It's not, it's not even how your grandparents or great-grandparents got here to Canada in the first place. It's not that. But we got to get rid of lazy tropes and we got to get rid of xenophobic language. And I got news for the premier. I got big news for him. And if he's not realizing it waking up this morning, he should. I expect there will be an apology today. I, you know, I did not see Justin Trudeau waiting out the four days. I said he's got to apologize after not going to Tofino. These are two totally different issues. But if we're talking about leaders and apologies, I remember saying on October 1st, he's got to come with that apology after stiffing invitations yesterday, basically not responding to them, saying he was in meeting on September 30th that yesterday, saying he was in private meetings, wandering along a beach in British Columbia. You can go later that day. You can go the next day and loop it into a long weekend. You just won the election. Decompress, celebrate, do what you need to do, but you must be there on that day. The apology came the Tuesday of the week after. And some people criticize the apology. And when Doug Ford does this, and he will do this. So I'm telling you right now, I don't know if I'm reporting this or not, but I'm telling you Doug Ford will apologize today. I'm sure of it. And he'll say he got his words mixed up or this and that. And maybe that is true. I don't doubt he has regret. Listen, live news conference got a little out of hand. The, the mouth starts moving faster than the brain does. I've been there. You may have been there as well, just not with cameras on you, not with microphones in front of you, not with people looking to pounce on your every mistake. I'm talking about Doug Ford, not me. But but what's Ontario's problem right now? Is he right about some of what our problems are? Uh-huh. We got a shortage of workers. Yeah, we do. We got a shortage of workers that want to do dirty jobs meaning hardworking jobs, decent paying jobs. Why do you think they've put this whole campaign together into the trades? Why do they think they are? And, and believe me, I know people who work in the trades. They're thrilled they work in the trades. I know one guy who used to be my radio producer. He got out of being a radio producer and got into construction and being an electrician. He loves it. Now, um, would he like to be a radio producer under better circumstances? Yes. He, he got put into um, very dysfunctional situations, I would put it this way. And he and I are fantastic friends. We text every day. Um, and, uh, and I think we're going to meet on Thursday with a couple guys from, from the old show at, at the old place. But, but he loves working in the trades. But that's not everybody. They're not for everybody. A construction job is not for everybody. I have great admiration. I've never glared at a construction worker. I've never raised my voice at a construction worker. I've never rolled my eyes at a construction worker. I don't care how delayed you make me in my car uh, to get from point A to point B because I'm so appreciative that we have people doing these jobs and we should pay them decently. But we got a shortage of workers for that. But here's where Doug Ford runs into trouble. When the mouth opens... And it's moving faster than the brain does. And I'm not weighing in. Don't get me wrong. I'm not weighing in on how intelligent Doug Ford is. That's, that's, that, that's not for me to do. That's not for me to do. I don't make it personal. It's not about personal. Okay? 
You have to come here in the morning. You have to set up what you want to say about certain topics. And the job is to keep it professional. Okay? And that's what it is. Massive mistake of his yesterday. Okay? I don't know the guy personally. I'm sure we'd have a great time together talking sports and talking a few other things. But you have a responsibility ad nauseum times a hundred when you're the premier of a province, the most populated province. To me, the greatest place you could possibly live. I know people say, I know people say this, okay? And you may not like that I say this, but it's true. And if you dig in deep inside your heart, you'll know it's true. If you say, hey, Canada is the greatest place in the world, there's a bunch of Canadas. There's a bunch of Canadas, and there's a lot of great places to go visit. Ontario is the best place in the best country to live, plain and simple, period. And I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. You'll drag me kicking and screaming to move anywhere else at any time. I'm praying my kids, as they get older, live close enough to me so I don't have to lift a finger and move again. A, moving sucks. I used to move all the time in my early 20s. So did you. And, uh, and Ontario is awesome to live in. But we've got our issues. Here's the comment, and I want you to weigh in via text at 289-975-1640, 289-975-1640, and tell me if you think he's going to apologize. I think he is today. I think you're getting a Doug Ford apology today for the comments and probably an explanation. And I actually believe, I really believe that most of what he said is accurate. And there's some frustration about the shortage of workers that we do have. But I got a tip for Doug Ford. It's not the new Canadians sitting at home on the quote-unquote dole. It's not the people that just got here two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago. You do realize most of the people that come to Canada, uh, they need a degree, a professional degree. They know the job they're going to do. This isn't our grandparents and great-grandparents getting off a boat and going, the hell do I do now? These things are set up and designed and people who emigrate here know what job they're going to and they sure bring a piece of most of the time they bring a piece of paper that makes them a lot more qualified to do that job than you or me so i got news for doug okay news for dougie it's not the new people (laughs) sitting around collecting the dole it's people that may have been here three generations or four generations That's what everyone tells me yesterday. That's what I know with my own eyes and my own anecdotal evidence. It's not the new Canadians sitting around. Now, here's Doug Ford yesterday. I'll let you listen to the comments. I'll let you sniff this out. It's not a racist comment to me. It's just an insensitive and ignorant comment. And there is a difference. Here's what he said. Folks, if you have some hardworking people, I just have one criteria. You come here like every other new Canadian has come here. You work your tail off. If you think you're coming to collect the dole and sit around, not going to happen. Go somewhere else. You want to work? Come here. We have so much work. We can't keep up with it. Uh Yeah, I don't love the comment. I don't love it at all. He should apologize, and I'm telling you that he will. It sounds an awful lot. It, it, to my ears, when I first heard it yesterday, and I'm, I stick with this instinct because I've heard it 10 times since then, it sounded a lot like this. You people love, you, you they come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. These guys pay for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys pay the, uh, the biggest price. It's a stereotype. It's a lazy one. That cost Don Cherry, was he was coming to the end of his career. 
he was on the 18th hole of the golf, you know, the golf round that was his career on television. I can tell you Sportsnet didn't want to pay the salary anymore. And they, you know, they saw it as a law of diminishing returns. But enough sponsors said, we think there's more juice left to squeeze. And it happens to everybody. A brilliant broadcaster, Rod Black, was kind of shoved out of a company last Friday. These things happen. And that's their right. We want to put somebody younger on. We want to put somebody different on. That's absolutely their right. Nobody owes you a gig in the media business or in politics the rest of your existence. But Doug Ford sounded like Don Cherry yesterday. And Don Cherry attempted to paint a lazy trope and a demeaning stereotype about new Canadians or new Ontarians, as Doug did yesterday. You know, people want to come and build a better life for their families. Most of the people coming here have a professional degree and are ready to go. I know that that's true. I see it with my own eyes. I know these parents. Parents of kids on my soccer team, which come from, there's 15 kids on the team. I've said it before, it's a regular United Nations. And every single parent, there's a parent back in India right now who took his kid with six weeks left in the season. I'm like, you can go, just leave the kid. He's really good. What are you doing? We need that kid. Whatever. But the bottom line is, is that he is a professional. He was brought here to Canada, invited to Canada, because they knew he could contribute right away. I'll tell you a quick story about going to the States. When I applied for a radio job in the States, and that was complicated. That was pre-9-11. Um, it would have been more complicated after 9-11. So this is 1998. After I'm tired of covering, you know, Tecumseh and, and Colchester City Council or Town Council or whatever. After I'm tired of that, okay? And going to fires, okay? <laughs> you, once you've gone to enough fires and you work in radio, you're like, let's move along here. But, but, here's the thing. Uh, I had to prove that I was the best person for the job. You know, and I'm ready to work. You know, I'm coming to, I'm I'm leaving. I'll give you some inside baseball here about radio. I'm leaving a $38,000 job in Canada. $38,000. Doesn't seem like very much, but it's 1998. And I'm taking a $25,000 salary in the United States. Now, with uh, what I would call the equalization payments, the, uh, the, 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 the exchange rate, I'm almost where I was, but not quite but I'm willing to do it and I'm willing to bust my ass. And I had to prove that I was the best person for the position. They had to put an ad out. They had to post the job in a newspaper. Yeah. 1998, they had to post the job in a newspaper and I had to prove I was the best person for it. And the goal was I, I was an immigrant to the United States. I'm an immigrant. Look at me. I'm an immigrant. So immigrants come in all shapes and sizes and tones of skin. I don't view this as racist i'm gonna defend doug ford here and say what he said was not racist but it sure was lazy it sure was a trope it sure was a stereotype it absolutely was and it cost don cherry uh, a better end to his broadcasting career it's going to cost doug ford an apology today he will give it that is coming i promise you that and if not if not we got a real problem with accountability here you gotta be accountable see this uh, headline in the uh, Toronto Star and Emma Tito's a great writer she's a great writer uh, but the headline is uh, would a four-day work week be a winner it might depend on who you are 
Yes, I, I agree. Uh, Dave Bradley, Sheba Siddiqui, Rob Trevison, join us now. So what is that? To, you know, this happens in sports, Dave, and people go, hey, maybe we'll reduce the amount of Major League Baseball games. But the first people to be suspicious are the Major League Baseball players. They're like, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. But if I'm playing less games, you're going to pay me less. Isn't that the first thing you think is if I'm not commuting, certainly, and I'm working 20 percent less? How will you not eventually dig in on my paycheck? Or will it mean working 20% more every day? You know what I mean? Are they going to spread out that extra day so you work 10 hours rather than 8 hours and you make uh, make that up? I know my brother used to work in the construction industry, and that was something they used to do, uh, especially in the summertime. They would work four tens. And then get a three day weekend. So, um, you know, and how did he it, like it? He he liked it in the summertime. It's great, but it's they're long days. I mean, you're working four straight ten hour days, and it's like, well, eventually it does wear on you. So, Sheba, how's this land for you? And it factors in, doesn't it? If kids are going to school five days a week, that sounds great for parents. Great I for parents. But what would... if they then chunk it to a four day school week as well? Then you're no, like, no, 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 no. There's I no agree. talk of that. No, no, no. There's a difference. That there's that's one thing. I read this article that you're referring to, and she actually talks about um, what what Dave just said that it's a t- ten hour workday. So you take that Friday and you incorporate it into the rest of your week. That I would actually love. I would. I think that the work life balance would be great for people's mental health. I think we would notice a difference with our, you know, with with each other, with our relationships, with our friendships, with our just the way we interact in the world. I think that we need it because we are a very work driven society. But the kids need to stay in school on Fridays. No, it has to be a five day school day, but a four day work <laughs> so week. So you want the day off without kids? Yes. Yeah. And that would be honestly my day of like errands, of of appointments, of getting all of that done before, you know, the kids come home Friday afternoon. Rob, four or five days. What works for you? Uh, I could do four. Sure. But I don't see how it's going to work for everyone. I mean, I don't think it works in our business either. Yeah. Does it? Because won't some people take Monday and some people take Friday? Yeah. Why? Like, well, who's going to mandate that it's the Friday or the Does Monday? Does that mean there's more fill-ins? And Sheba hates my Brady Wednesday plan. Of all the plans she's I think hated. that's a good idea. She doesn't no, like the BWP. Horrible. Everyone loves the Horrible. Every- We're taking tomorrow off. Let's see what they do. It's a wildcat strike. We did that in high school. Took Wednesdays off. <laughs> really? Oh, I see. <laughs> Don't you think Ferris Bueller and Cameron were taking Wednesday off? Oh, that didn't sure. look like that a was, Monday that to me. Yeah, no Wednesday. Total That's Wednesday. not a Monday. The, Cub, the Cubs were Bueller. at home that day, so I don't think it was a Monday or a Friday. No. But that's you. I like this idea better than the other idea. I think is terrible. Is um, splitting up summer, right? And saying let's have more vacation during the the regular year because then you can't send a kid to summer camp and kids can't work eight, nine weeks in a row. They like it destroys the concept of a summer job. So I like the week thing better. I've heard all like year round schooling is the phrase I'm looking for. Uh, And I hate the concept of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I do too. I mean, I I like the fact that kids get a chance to, like you say, go to camp, have a summer job when they get a little bit older. Also, parents get an idea where they can plan to uh, maybe take a longer trip. Maybe if they want to take two weeks and go somewhere uh, on vacation for the summertime, then that's a, that's a good thing, too. Yeah. Sheba, all, uh, year-round schooling? Oh, absolutely not. The kids need their summers. I mean, I saw that this summer after, you know, virtual schooling and whatnot. Those kids just, kids blossom, they grow, they explore, they need their summers. But yeah, look at our summers. I'm sure you guys had great summers. Those two months off, that made it everything. Yeah, it's about the sixth week of summer I start getting into some really bad habits. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I, you know, sp- spiraling into addiction on, but mostly just watching <laughs> bad TV shows. Mostly just binge. I was binge watching before it was a common phrase. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Really appreciate it. 
back for a live show tomorrow on Wednesday, the 20th of October, between 5.30 and 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you can join us then.